As we get older, we want to know what can we do to keep our brain sharp. And a lot of people will say, you know, maybe it's crossword puzzles or maybe there's some supplements or eating blueberries. I'm always hesitant to suggest that these activities are, you know, the one thing. And in fact, the one thing is probably not to look for the one thing. Uh, it's probably a collection of factors. And a lot of research has shown things like being social, being connected to people, to hobbies, to things you care about can be incredibly important. And the other thing that I think is very important that we overlook is physical exercise. You know, the brain requires oxygen and blood flow. And if you're moving, you're going to be helping your brain kind of complete the tasks that it wants to. So I think this mind-body connection is very important and sometimes overlooked when we think about, you know, how can I stay sharp? In today's conversation with Dr. Alan Castell, we're talking about how the brain, thinking, and cognition change as we age. In this episode, Dr. Castell will discuss some of the normal age-related declines we can expect as we get older, at what point we can begin to discern if our decline is atypical or problematic, some of the research-proven ways we can preserve and protect the health of our brain's memory and attentional capabilities, and what goes into creating a meaningful and fulfilling life according to the elderly. Alan Castell is a professor in the Department of Psychology at the University of California, Los Angeles. His areas of research include learning, memory, aging, and he's interested in how people can selectively remember important information. His work has been featured in the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and Time Magazine. His recent book is entitled Better with Age, The Psychology of Successful Aging. Dr. Castell was also one of my professors when I was a student at UCLA, and I'm thrilled that I can bring him on to share his expertise with all of you. Before you dive in, I would love if you could hit pause and leave us a five-star review and a written review on whatever platform you're listening on. In doing so, you help get this podcast into the ears and brains of more listeners like you. Now let's dive in and start talking nerdy. So welcome to Talk Nerdy to Me, Professor Castell. I'm so grateful to have you on here. Just so the listeners have a little bit of context, you were one of my favorite professors when I was in school at UCLA, and you taught a really fascinating class called Cognition and Successful Aging. And as I've been looking over the demographic information for who's been listening and tuning into this podcast, we have a really broad age range going from 15-year-olds all the way up to 90-year-olds that are tuning in and listening to this. And so I figured bringing an expert in who can speak a little bit more to how our brains and our cognition changes over the course of a lifetime is something that would be really supportive and helpful to listeners. So I'm so honored to have you on here. And I figured a good place to begin would just be if you could share a little bit more with listeners about how you got into this area of expertise and your fields of research within memory, cognition, and aging. Well, thank you for having me. It's great to, to talk with you, and I'm glad you enjoyed the class. I think one thing about aging that's interesting is we shouldn't just start thinking about it when we're 50, 60, 70, or when we get gray hair. And so that's something I tried to emphasize in the class, that aging is a lifespan approach. So even when we're 20 or 30, we might notice age-related changes, some good, some bad. And what can we do to kind of adapt to how our body, our brain changes as we get older? So I think that's what drew me to this field. I had older grandparents when I was younger, and I saw 
a variety of changes that happened to them. You know, some memories, some of them had great sense of humor, some of them were very active, some of them weren't. You know, I found it fascinating spending a lot of time. I, I also was in South Florida for a long period of my younger life. And so I saw just all these older adults doing many amazing and different things. So I think that drew me to this field of cognition and aging. And now I, I run a lab at UCLA where we study how people's memory changes as we get older. Amazing. Thank you so much for sharing that. I think one of the first questions that I have for you and that some of the listeners wrote in that they had for you as well, because there are a few of them now that are expecting you, how can we expect cognition to change normally over the course of our lifetime? And when can we start to suspect that there may be some atypical or abnormal changes that are taking place? It's a great question. It's a concern for people as we get older. You know, if you forget your keys or forget the name of someone you recently met, does this mean you have Alzheimer's disease? And first of all, I think to preface, I'm not a neurologist, a medical doctor, or even a clinical psychologist. So we do research on kind of a broad group of people, but there are age-related memory changes that can be expected that are just um, happen as we get older because we're remembering more things, we're distracted, our attention isn't as focused. So, you know, our research lab has really looked at not how much memory is impaired, but how older adults can selectively focus on what's important. So if you know you can't remember as much as you used to, will you kind of reduce what you will want to try and remember and focus on, you know, remembering the three things you need to get at the store or the foods a child is allergic to or the medications you need to get, as opposed to trying to remember everything. And I think that's the difference between younger people and older people is, Younger people can remember a lot of stuff. And maybe when you were an undergraduate, you remember you just highlight lots of things and, and remember lots of stuff for a test. Whereas as we get older, we might be more discerning or careful as to what we try to remember because we know we can't remember everything. And I think just back to an anecdote that, you know, if you go and park your car in a parking lot at a shopping center and, and come out and can't remember where you parked your car, that's kind of a normal function of memory that there's interference. There's many different parking spaces you've maybe parked here before. And that's that's not really something to be concerned about. But the, the joke is if you can't remember if you own a car, then that's kind of more concerning in terms of age-related memory changes. So there are differences as we get older and some that one could be concerned about. But for the most part, I think our brain can adapt by allowing us to focus on what's important. Amazing. So there are a few things that I want to circle back to in what you just shared and some deeper questions that I want to ask. And the first is, as it pertains to interference, right, there are going to be some listeners who don't really understand what that means. So can you break down in the context of memory what interference entails and why that might impact our ability to remember where we parked the car or where we left our keys? Right. It's one of these things that as we get older, there's just more stuff that accumulates in our brain. We've heard more songs. We've met more people. We've been to many places. And as a result, one theory of memory is that it's not that we forget things and lose access to them. It's that there's more stuff there and we need to kind of rifle through it to get to the information that we want to access. So that's the idea that things build up this idea of interference in memory that, you know, you're trying to recall someone's name and you can't quite remember their name, but other names are coming to mind. And so that happens as you kind of have more information stored in your brain. So you have to have kind of a more specific retrieval cue 
you know, a reminder that, oh, the name was, you know, like my great uncle's name, or it reminds me of the restaurant that I, you know, it's also got the same name. So those kind of reminders can help older adults access information. And sometimes it just takes more time. I think, you know, we've experienced this at any age, we can't recall something specifically, but then later it comes to us. So it shows that it's not forgotten. It's just that we don't have access to it at that given time. That makes a lot of sense. I think the other question that I had in what you just shared is in terms of the selective or more selective quality of attention that we have as we get older. And remembering the things that are truly just more important, is that something that's happening consciously or something that's primarily happening unconsciously? And it's a great question. You know, our lab studies what we call metacognition, which is a kind of an awareness of our cognition or kind of how our memories might have changed. And I think as we get older, we're almost hyper aware of this. We're concerned that our memory is changing or we're worried about our memory changing. But one thing that can also happen is what might be an adaptive function where we know we can't remember as much. So we might say, I'm going to focus on remembering the things that are very relevant for today, the things that I need to do, maybe the people I want to meet, but I know I'm going to forget other things. And I think this is important at kind of any age to have this accurate metacognition or awareness of how our memory works. And so I think, you know, the typical college student might also not be aware of being selective and how that's useful. And so I think as we get older, despite there being some memory impairments, our lab has really been interested in how older adults selectively remember important information. And we found that, you know, with some experience, older adults are actually quite good at this. They're not remembering as much as the younger adults in this lab setting, but they're kind of maximizing their memory by focusing on what we use, like high value words, the words that are worth the most points in that experimental setting. So that's kind of the, the evidence for memory changing with age, not simply declining. It sounds like that is something that we can improve as a skill set at any age. And I'm curious if there's been any research showing that it can be just as effective in younger populations to focus on things that are high value as well. Yeah. And I think part of when you're saying um, it's a mindset, there is a conscious component and maybe it's partly being present or knowing that you're not going to be able to do everything or remember everything. And once you've had that experience of forgetting something important, you know, I've forgotten my laptop on an airplane or, you know, something that's like, I don't need to remember everything. I need to remember the most important things. And so I think there probably is some training component to it, but I think that's also life experience. And and if you ask people, you know, it's frustrating when you can't remember names, but have you ever forgotten something really important that they might have some experience of that? And that might then inform how they behave in the future. So I almost feel like if you give younger adults some of these kind of memory challenges, they'll be aware I need to focus on what's important. Older adults, by virtue of just living longer and having more experience, can take advantage of that. Sometimes you need to remind the people or sometimes the consequences need to be considerable. You're going on a trip, you know, you try and pack everything. But if you forgot your passport or your medication, those are really critical. Whereas if you forget your toothbrush or, you know, a T-shirt, those are things you can replace. So I think that's the kind of thing that just changes with age. And again, it's important to consider age-related changes in memory in, in context of, of what's important to remember. That makes a lot of sense. It brings me to my next question, which is how can we start to protect and preserve the memory that we do have or the cognitive abilities that we do have in order to prevent decline that's atypical or abnormal? 
Yeah, it's a great question. I think as we get older, we want to know what can we do to keep our brain sharp. And a lot of people will say, you know, maybe it's crossword puzzles or maybe there's some supplement or eating blueberries. I'm always hesitant to suggest that these activities are, you know, the one thing. And in fact, the one thing is probably not to look for the one thing. Uh, it's probably a collection of factors. And a lot of research has shown things like being social, being connected to people, to hobbies, to things you care about can be incredibly important. And the other thing that I think is very important that we overlook is physical exercise. There's a lot of research now showing that people who, who walk regularly, swim, bike, dance, get physical exercise, have better memory than those people who are sedentary. And there's, there's really nice experimental evidence showing this as well. That they, the part of the brain that's very involved in memory is the hippocampus, and it, it tends to decline in volume by about 1% after the age of 50. So every year, your hippocampus is gradually shrinking. And so this research looked at people, they, they randomly assigned people to walk three to four times a week for 45 minutes or stretch. So they're still getting a form of exercise, but one is more cardiovascular. And they followed up with this group six months and a year later, and they found that the group that was walking actually had improvements in memory. And then when they did some neuroimaging and scanned their brain, they found that the hippocampus, which usually declines after a period of time, actually increased in volume for the walking group, but not the stretching group. So this is really gives strong evidence that, you know, the brain requires oxygen and blood flow. And if you're moving, you're going to be helping your brain kind of complete the tasks that it wants to. So I think this mind-body connection is very important and sometimes overlooked when we think about, you know, how can I stay sharp? People will say, well, I need to do brain activities. And I think certainly that can be useful. Sudoku, if you like playing games, that that's great. But it's not the one thing, and it's not necessarily what you need to do. And I think it's probably a collection of things that incorporate physical exercise, being social, being connected, and then you know some of these stimulating brain activities, whether it's playing music, whether it's you know talking to people who have a different opinion, whether it's you know studying a new language. All of these things can can help you. Given that our brains are largely in control of, or at the very least influencing nearly every activity that we do, it would make sense that every activity is a brain activity to a certain extent. Something else that you mentioned is social connection. And I'm curious if you can share a little bit more about why that might offer some neuroprotective benefits of sorts. Yeah, I think it's often overlooked, but I think having some social connection is important possibly to prevent loneliness, but also, you know, just people staying in touch with one another makes sure that you're uh, staying sharp. You know, you have to take into account other people's opinions when you talk to them. You have to appreciate why someone is sharing some information. And so this sort of activity is, is really challenging. We take it for granted. But I think also being around people you care about, people that you enjoy spending time with is something that's often overlooked. And I think during COVID, we certainly learned that just having a screen in front of you with someone can be helpful. But, you know, a lot of research showed that people felt disconnected and it led to changes in mood, which can influence, you know, if you're getting exercise, which can influence memory, which can influence sleep. So all of these things, I think, are connected at a level that makes it hard to determine, you know, is it this, is it that? But I think that's what it comes down to. And I talk about it a little bit in my book. It's probably a collection of factors. And one thing that's often overlooked is balance. So it's not just being social or just getting physical exercise. It's having 
a balanced life in terms of a balanced diet. It's not important to be social all the time. It's important to have some sort of balance. And the other thing I think is physical balance. It's something, again, that's overlooked. People will say, I notice changes in my memory. I'm worried about remembering names. I'll say, well, how about your physical balance? And most people say it's fine. I'm, you know, I'm walking, everything's good. But one in three people over the age of 65 will experience a fall. And a fall can result in a broken hip, you know, wrist, collarbone, it can result in rehabilitation. You're in bed. If you're not moving, then you're not getting blood flow to your brain, your hippocampus is shrinking, your memory declines, you loss of independence. And so these sorts of things, I think, are, again, overlooked, that it's very simple. And, you know, we're doing a podcast, but often when I do presentations, I'd say, let's take a break and stand up and check in on our balance. And it's a very simple test where you stand up, ideally with a chair near you, and stand on one leg and, and see how long you can do it. And most people can do it for a few seconds, and then they start to notice some kind of changes. And then, you know, you try the other leg and, and then try doing it with your eyes closed, which is very challenging, but it, it simulates what happens when you get up at night and it's a dark room and you're walking to the bathroom and you might trip over a carpet or a pet and you have to regain your balance. And that's not something we think about, but I think it's probably even more important than memory. And these things are connected. You know, the cerebellum is the most primitive part of our brain that controls a lot of motor movements and is involved in balance. You can train your brain by doing these balance exercises. So I think it's really important to check in on, on our balance and make sure that we're doing things that can keep us on our feet. On all fronts. I don't think I shared this with you when we were emailing back and forth, but at the time that this episode is being recorded, I'm actually visiting family in Greece. And one of the blue zones is here in Greece, where they have one of the highest concentrations of centenarians in the world. And from everything that I've read online, it seems like there's a combination of things that contributes to that longevity. And a huge component of it is community and social connection, as well as having a more active lifestyle where they're walking everywhere, as well as eating really good food and being in a place with really clean air. But I'm curious if you can speak a little bit more to the relationship between cognitive health and longevity, is there a relationship between the two? Yeah, and I, a lot of these are correlations, so we don't know what causes what. But I think the Blue Zone example is an interesting one because it's not necessarily causal that you have to be in Greece to do these things. But it's helpful because that's, you know, there's a Mediterranean diet, but you could follow that anywhere. And another one of these blue zones in contrast is Loma Linda, California, which, you know, in terms of terrain does not look like Greece in terms of air quality might not be, you know, the same, but there's a, a strong sense of community there. So if you're part of a, a religious organization, if you're part of a community, people are looking out for you. People are asking how you're doing. You're going on walks. You're engaging with something bigger than just yourself. And I think these are important factors that, that play a really big role, both in, in terms of cognition, but also longevity. These different blue zones, some ways you might think I'd have to move to Japan or move somewhere else. But what you need to do is just incorporate some of these lifestyle changes that and some regions are a little more difficult. Either the weather doesn't cooperate or there's not as many sidewalks or people are not eating the same sort of diet. But I, I think that is a great example of how it's not just one thing. It's a, it's a collection of things that can lead to both longevity, but also improvements in cognitive ability. We've talked about some of the things that can improve, but I'm sure there are a number of habits or behaviors that we can hypothetically participate in. 
that would lead to cognitive decline. And one of the examples that comes to mind is the abundant use of cell phones and iPhones that everybody is participating in. I'm curious if there are any specific behaviors or things that people are doing that you think can increase our rate of decline over time. It's interesting because, again, correlational studies have shown that older adults who use the internet for at least a few hours, you know, occasionally are less likely to develop dementia. So it's almost like if you're open to learning new skills and able to participate and use the internet kind of in a responsible manner, that might be beneficial. But it's probably like a dose response curve where maybe the more you do it, the, the more time you're taking from things we know improve cognition like walking. Right. So that's why I'm hesitant to tell people, oh, doing Sudoku or doing crossword puzzles, that's really good for your brain because you're probably getting more screen time or more sedentary time. And really what we probably all need is more time, you know, away from our screens and walking. So I think there's, you know, costs and benefits, definitely. Another factor is distraction. I think a lot of especially younger people are distracted with a phone, with multiple screens. It's hard to stay focused and that can lead to changes in memory performance, just not being able to focus on things. And, you know, I use this as, as an example. It's not necessarily an age-related change, but people can be so consumed that they'll forget an infant in the back of their car. And these are, you know, younger parents, very intelligent people who just get so caught up and, you know, they start driving and then they drive to their office and forget that they're supposed to drop off an infant at daycare. And this can result in fatalities. So, I think that's kind of the extreme example of how distraction or kind of this hyper-focus can also lead to catastrophic implications. So I think it's important to try and stay present, to try and stay balanced. And, you know, distraction, it's normal to mind wander. In fact, research shows every few minutes that's what our mind will do, and that might lead to creativity. That can be a good thing. But I think, you know, a lot of screens or alerts or checking email frequently can definitely disrupt our train of thought. Absolutely. It seems like it's something that we would want to have a certain level of adaptability or flexibility in, in terms of creativity. Like we would want to be able to allow the mind to wander in moments when it behooves us, but also focus in the moments when it's necessary to focus. And it feels like, at least in the younger generation and in the millennials, that there's less and less of an ability to do that. It seems like we're training ourselves through the use of technology to only be able to be distracted and losing our ability to focus subsequently. At least that's what my experience has been and what I've observed in others. And so I'm curious if you have any recommendations in terms of ways we can start to build up our focus again. Yeah, I think focus is something we think is is important, but it also has this creativity component that we might focus on something for a period of time and then it reminds us of something else and distracts us. And that, that's kind of natural mind wandering. I think the difference is whether our mind is wandering naturally versus it being consumed by stimuli or, or reminders or signals, you know, like a phone going off or an email alert, which then can disrupt these things that can be very beneficial. And so a lot of people will say some of the kind of best ideas they've had or, or thoughts that they have is often when they're away from technology, when they're in the shower or when you're swimming or, you know, when you're driving, because that's when you can really let your mind wander and go to the places where you really want to focus on the things that are important to you. So I think it's interesting. I mean, technology can be so helpful and connects us to things that are so informative and interesting and to 
people around the world, but there is definitely a need to take time to let your mind focus on the things that are important. Absolutely. So are there any lifestyle changes or lifestyle habits that you think would be just baseline beneficial for everybody to start participating in if they're not already? Yeah, I think just to recap what we've spoken about, I think when people talk about brain training, you know, we think of things like learning a new language or, you know, trying to learn how to juggle or take up Sudoku. But I think there's so many things that we can do in our everyday life, you know, talking to people, reading fiction, even that can challenge our brain. And then things that we might overlook, again, physical exercise, going on a walk, dancing, any of these things that kind of keep you moving are incredibly important um, and to have some sort of balance. And this last part, really, I learned from writing this book that as much as memory is important, just staying on your feet is important. So check in on your balance training and you don't need to do yoga to do this. Again, you could just stand up on one leg, see how long you can do it, and you can train these sorts of things. So you can, you know, try and do it every day and then, you know, switch legs. And I notice changes in my balance, whether I'm tired, with stressed, if I'm distracted. So I think those things definitely contribute as well. So it's an interesting way to kind of keep tabs on how you're performing, not just your memory, but, you know, the rest of your brain and your body. Amazing. Thank you so much. There were a few questions that some listeners wrote in that I would love to ask you. Somebody wrote in and asked what some of the differences are between men and women, female and male, as we age cognitively. And if there are any differences that are more stereotypical that we can expect from the male brain versus the female brain as we age and our cognition changes. Yeah, it's a great question. People often ask that and, and kind of speculate. And sometimes it's based on, you know, a spouse. I've also heard about differences in multitasking. Some people will say, you know, some people are better at it than others. And there's definitely individual differences. You know, I'm not really equipped to say, you know, women are better at this and men are better at that, because I think those are generalizations. And you want to be careful because even though sometimes that can be the case and there is some evidence, you know, for one outperforming the other. What's impressive is you can get rid of these differences quite easily once people kind of use strategies or focus on things or just make more of an effort sometimes and really reduce those differences. So without answering the question directly or giving specifics, I think, yes, there are some differences, but those differences can really be reduced when we really put our mind to it or put our brain to it. Now, some of it is like sometimes it's just hard to multitask and Multitask is interesting because it's actually really just rapid task switching. It's not like you're actually doing several tasks at the same time. You're moving from one task to another, to another, to another. And some people are kind of good at that engagement, disengagement component, whereas other people who are very focused, once they get into something, it's very hard to kind of step away and move on to the next thing. So it's not that they're necessarily bad at multitasking. Maybe they're very good at, at focusing. So that's kind of just one way to interpret some of these findings. Thank you so much. One of the other questions that came in was, I think in a moment of panic, is there any point in time where we're beyond a point of being able to strengthen our cognitive abilities? Like, is there ever a moment where there's no more hope in terms of improving cognition and memory? Yeah, I think, again, this is a big concern for people, especially when people even hear the word dementia or Alzheimer's disease. And sadly, there's no cure for dementia and, you know, there's no pharmacological treatment that really is going to change drastically how you're doing. 
But I think what is good to know is that some of the things that do appear to work are not just one thing. So it's not just eating blueberries or just walking. So some of these small studies have really taken people and given them, you know, 25 things ranging from, you know, a variety of diet changes. It's almost like exposing them to the blue zones, right? It's not giving them one thing, but it's making them do a bunch of things that can result in a big change. So I think the long answer would be outlining what things can you do to change that might help from diet to sleep to exercise to social things to brain training, all of these things, even, you know, to some degree supplements, although I'm not sure there's really one supplement, but making sure that you have a balanced diet. So the research I've seen suggests that when you make a lot of these changes, you can have some good outcomes. But the one thing is, again, not to look for one thing, you know, like there's, you know, supplements, Prevagen, things that people think might improve their memory. And really, there's no good evidence for that. And so I think you know, balance training, walking, being around other people, eating well, sleeping well, all of these things can play a big role when they're kind of put together. Amazing. Something that you've mentioned twice at this point in the episode is blueberries. <laughs> so one of the other questions that came in was the role that diet plays in cognitive health, especially over the course of our lifetime. Yeah. I mean, I think, again, it, it's one of these things where it's not to look for one thing. And, and blueberries have been tied to, you know, an antioxidant, which can possibly reduce inflammation and help with brain health. But they're by far not the only thing. And again, just because you're eating them every day doesn't mean it'll work. Maybe if you have them a few times a week. So I think diet does play a big role and it's tied psychologically to habits. You know, we have habits of why do we want to eat certain sugary foods or carbohydrates and how to change those habits can be really important, whether it's, you know, changing the context of who you're around or when, you know, do you eat in the morning because that's just when you normally eat versus eating when you're hungry or eating when you really need nutrition. So coming back to this idea that there's blue zones, a lot of these blue zones, it's not like there's one diet. It's just that these diets are a good match for individuals. A North American kind of approach is I want the one thing, whether it's pomegranate juice or blueberries. And again, those things may improve memory, but they probably don't improve memory to the degree that you'd notice, <laughs> right? You know, even if some study showed that there is a small increase in memory performance on some cognitive test, it doesn't mean it's going to help you, you know, find your keys in the morning or remember the name of the person you met. You're going to have to combine that with many other things like physical exercise, staying stimulated, being social. All of these things probably will have a bigger effect. That makes a lot of sense. So you mentioned that one of the components of diet that may influence our cognitive health is inflammation. And I also know that there's been a ton of research done on the relationship between stress and inflammation. So can you speak a little bit more to the impact of stress on our brain health and our memory and attention? Yeah, I mean, I'm not an expert in, in the area of stress, but I mean, stress can have various effects on us. In some ways, it's, it's good to stress your body in a way that's what exercise is. You're challenging yourself. These sorts of things lead to a response. But of course, a higher level of stress or the wrong kinds of stress can lead to inflammation or responses that are not good for your body. So I think now there's a lot of research on gut health. There's a lot of research on how stress can lead to inflammation in various parts of the body. 
There's some research suggesting that Alzheimer's disease might be an inflammation response to a variety of things. So I think it is important to try and think of a mechanism that can be at play because then we can try and treat that. And so I think stress and inflammation is certainly one very useful avenue to consider. And you can reduce inflammation in a variety of ways. Some of it is dietary changes. Some of it is social, being around the people who don't, you know, lead to a stressful response. Exercise might be able to release, you know, things from your body that can allow you to, to detox. So I think it, there's a variety of things we can do. But if we understand kind of the, the mechanism a bit better of, you know, what leads to inflammation and whether it's a stress response, a gut response, we might be able to understand kind of brain health, which I think is really interesting. And I think there's, you know, things from looking at changes in eye health or dental health can also be kind of illuminating in terms of your level of inflammation. So again, I think from a psychological standpoint, it, it's really interesting because a lot of these things are connected. And so I think it's not just to eat blueberries or do crossword puzzles because you want to treat things like inflammation in a more global global way. It seems like the overall theme from this episode is that it's a multifaceted, multidimensional, well-balanced approach that we need to take if we want to set ourselves up for success in terms of our cognitive health as we age. So one of my favorite parts of your class was when you were teaching us about some of the factors that led older individuals to believe that they had meaningful and fulfilling lives. And I'm curious if you can share a little bit more of that with listeners. Yeah, I think what's interesting is if you take a kind of a broad range of people and ask them, you know, how happy they are or how how much life satisfaction they have, what's striking is that older adults often report higher levels of happiness than college age students. And this is somewhat surprising. Sometimes people think it might be the opposite, but actually rates of clinical depression are higher in college age students than they are in healthy older adults. So I think for older adults, it really does come down to having some connection, things that can lead to life satisfaction, what, what are those things, and surrounding yourself with the people you care about. So a lot of older adults will say they don't want to go back to being 30 or 40, even though that might have been an exciting time or even 20. You know, they wish they didn't have many aches and pains or that their memory was better, but time in life like 50 or 60 was actually very rewarding. So I think that sort of perspective and shift to more emotionally meaningful goals. So some research at Stanford suggests that older adults are kind of more focused on achieving emotionally meaningful goals and, and regulating emotions more so than younger people. I think it's really interesting because it suggests there's a kind of a shift, not that there's a change and older adults are better or worse. And I think that's an important way to understand aging, that there's just age differences, not simply declines. Can you define for listeners what an emotionally meaningful goal is, or maybe even give a few examples? Yeah, I mean, again, this differs for different individuals, but a lot of times when we're younger, we're, uh, we're seeking out things like getting a degree or getting a job or becoming you know, professionally oriented. But then, you know, other sorts of goals as we're older might involve spending time with people that we care about or doing hobbies that we think are fulfilling or joining an organization that we think is important. So it's kind of this shift and it's not necessarily emotional in that it gives great emotional you know, pleasure, but it feels like we're doing something that contributes 
either to society or contributes to family in ways that are meaningful. And I think that shift can be seen when, you know, again, this research by Laura Carstensen and Stanford suggests that we have some sort of time perspective. And, and it may or may not be conscious that as we get older, we realize we're not going to live as long and we want to use our years kind of wisely. And so that might involve being around the people we care about, doing the activities we care about, maybe not worrying so much about some professional goal or career that might be more kind of in a rear view mirror at that point. So I think it's not necessarily just seeking out emotions that are relevant. It's focusing on goals that are things that older adults want to achieve. And sometimes that involves being around family, being around others that they care about, but still having balance. So it's not like, you know, you want to spend eight, 10 hours with grandchildren every day. In fact, some really interesting research shows, again, correlational that older adults who are grandparents who spend, you know, five to 10 hours a week with grandchildren are less likely to develop dementia and live longer. But those that actually spend more than 10 hours a week are actually don't get these sorts of benefits. Anything there might be cost. So now you're spending a lot of time doing childcare. So I think, again, this speaks to this idea of balance that as we get older, we're, you know, we're looking to have this balance. We want to achieve emotionally meaningful goals, but it doesn't mean you're constantly doing that. And that's, that's the only thing that's important in, in older age. Amazing. And one of my last questions for you is how has this area of research personally impacted your life? I think it's so interesting to work with older adults. Um, I enjoy interacting with older adults and, and learning what they have to say. I think I've learned a lot in terms of, you know, some of the topics I've shared with you, like I didn't really understand changes in balance, that that was so important and often overlooked. So kind of from the physical standpoint, I've found that, you know, while memory is fascinating and how we can sometimes remember things in different ways and focus on remembering more positive things than negative things as we get older, this idea of balance, I think it's really crucial from a physical standpoint, but also from a mental standpoint that you can't just change your diet and expect to have big changes in, you know, health. It's usually coupled with other things like exercise or being around other people, which then influences sleep. And that's something that, again, changes with age. You can't just tell someone you need to get better sleep or more sleep. I've appreciated more the holistic approach while still trying to understand how certain activities and variables can influence how we age. Amazing. Thank you so much for sharing. I know that there are a lot of listeners out there who are going to be wanting to learn more from you and about you moving forward. So anything that you share is going to be in the show notes, but where can listeners learn more? Certainly. I wrote a book called Better With Age, The Psychology of Successful Aging, and it was really kind of a collection of the latest research and topics on how to age well, coupled with interviews with older adults who have achieved successful aging in different ways. That's the book that kind of has has motivated me to understand aging in a more kind of accessible you know, manner that can help us all age well. Amazing. So as somebody who has read that book, because it was required reading, I can personally attest to how good it is and that I would choose to read it <laughs> even if it was not assigned to me as a college textbook, essentially. So I highly recommend that if you're listening, that you go to the show notes and take a look at Professor Castell's book. And you also have a TED Talk that I think is phenomenal. There's going to be a link to that in the show notes as well. 
Is there any final word of wisdom or insight that you want to leave listeners with before we close out for the day? Uh, I think it's wonderful what you're doing. I think as we get older, it's important to to share our experiences and talk to other people, younger and older people. One thing that we're looking at now, you know, to end on a slightly more concerning note, is how scams and fraud target older adults. So that's a new area of research that we're studying now, and not just older adults, but younger adults are scammed all the time in different ways. So I think it's important to be aware of what we can do to age well, but also cautious to, you know, avoid things that might be too good to be true, whether it's, you know, some new supplement or some new offer. So I think that's another avenue that we need to be aware of as we get older. And really important one. So thank you for sharing. And thank you so much for your time and your expertise today. Thank you. If you loved this episode, help us get it into the ears and brains of more listeners like you by sharing it on social media. When you share on Instagram, make sure you tag me at Alex underscore Nashton. Instagram is also the best place to send me your questions about the episode material and make requests for future topics and guests. New episodes of Talk Nerdy to Me drop every single Wednesday. When you hit subscribe, you'll be notified of new releases so you never have to miss one. Last but not least, this podcast baby would not be possible without Adam Russell. Adam, I am so grateful to have had your support in creating this podcast. Thank you for always being willing to talk nerdy to me.